Okay, we're gonna, as you can see, talk about marriage and sexuality in the family. Um, I, I was the one who chose this title and I wanted all three of those things to be connected. So that's a kind of an intentional clustering of ideas and, and topics. So um, it's, it's one of those things that we, our society likes to separate and uh, I think it's important to keep them together. So we'll be talking about all three of them. Uh, all of them are in the background even when we're talking about one, so. Um, Um, a couple of, I don't know, caveats or uh, th throat clearing items. Um, since we're talking about, you know, a topic that's sensitive in our culture to a degree, um, and also assuming that I'm not going to be convincing a lot of people uh, in here, I, I'm, I'm going to assume. Uh, that most people in here are uh, already sort of ag agree with what I'm going to tell you. Um, and if you don't, that's fine. I mean, probably not everybody does, but um, that uh, talking about, especially talking about homosexuality and um, sort of alternative forms of, of sexuality that uh, are not standard according to biblical teaching. Um, it's easy to kind of slide into derisive uh, tone or contempt, and I'm 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 just as guilty of that as anybody else. And I'm I'm going to try not to do that. And um, I would ask the same of you in your comments. Um, let's let's be respectful, um, even when we do take a hard line on issues, which which we will. Um, these are these are persons that we we're called to love. Um, as well as uh, dis disagree with, if necessary. So, um, and along those lines, you know, I'm I'm going to be talking about biblical data and public policy and a lot of kind of high level things. Um, and this is this is not the same thing as you know dealing with a son or a sister or a brother or a nephew who comes out as gay. Um, that's a different kettle of fish, and that requires a different set of skills than I'm going to be talking about this morning. Um, I do want to approach it with a sort of pastoral sensitivity, um, but um, you know, I, this this is not this talk is not geared to be therapeutic uh, in uh, in its in its tone. So uh, don't kind of take this and use it as sort of ammo or a bludgeon to. Uh, hit people over the head with who, who you feel dis disagree with you or who, who believe differently about these things. Um, it is important to be forthright and to be direct and um, in, the, in, these, in these public debates, but just uh, keep those kind of different venues in, in your mind as we go ahead too. So another kind of stepping back and in, in introductory idea is that um, when we're talking about marriage and sexuality and the family, in our culture, um, the overwhelming message uh, we get um, that I'll get to a little bit at the end as well, but I wanted to say it here at the outset is uh, follow your heart. Do, love is about doing what you feel inside of you. 
Um, and your, your feelings are the key to your true self. Um, I hope what comes out today is very much a different perspective on love and marriage and family and sexuality than, than that. But that's what we get. Um, I've kind of noticed lately that, um, you know, it, the ideas we have about love are all about your desires and validating your desires. Um, and you see this, you know, and maybe you see this in homosexuality and um, our, our love of sex, but it, it starts a lot younger. Um, and you see it, uh, especially, you know, when um, I've, wa I've watched a lot of Disney movies in my day. What does a Disney princess do when she's figuring out who she is? Almost in every movie, this is what happens. She looks in the mirror. She doesn't, she doesn't go to her family or her community. She's looking in a mirror almost every time. There's, almost, there's a scene in almost every Disney movie where the princess looks in a mirror and says, who am I? You're looking at yourself. You're not looking to God. You're not looking to your family. You're not looking to your community. You're not looking to values external to yourself. You're saying, who am I deep down inside? That's, that's where we're, we're getting our messaging from. So, I love this movie, for the record. I, it's, a, it's a great movie. And, you know, she figures out that her mother is not her mother, and her actual parents are really great. So that's maybe not quite the best example, but um, it was a good picture, I thought. So. But I think the point, point holds. So all that to say that, you know, unless we educate ourselves and our families otherwise, the, the default message they're going to get is one that's on a spectrum where love is about, fundamentally about, realizing and validating your inner desires and feelings. Uh, we, have to, we have to push against that. We have to educate otherwise. Love, family, marriage, sexuality, all those things are about these goods that are outside of us that speak into us and that we look to um, rather than into ourselves to find our deepest longings. Our deepest longings are fundamentally bent and disordered uh, if we're honest with ourselves. So that's kind of the default position I'm coming from. And we'll, we'll swing back to this at the end, too, uh, in, in the context of marriage especially. Okay, um, there, is, there is a lot of material we could cover with marriage and sexuality. Um, there's no shortage of resources. Uh, there's uh, no shortage of, of debate. Um, so I'm going to try to do some pretty specific things, and I'll tell you that in a second. Um, I want to tell you about kind of what my sources were in preparing for this. I wanted to be really fair and even-handed, um, so I made sure to get all of my documentation from social media, especially <laughs> Twitter and Facebook. Um, just so, you know, we can all stay calm and reasonable. Just kidding. Um, so I've got two books here. Um, one I recommend highly and one I don't, uh, unless you, well, this is, this is kind of the, the, the mountain in terms of looking at the Bible and homosexuality. There are a lot of good books out there. Um, I haven't read really any of them. This, this is a very technical uh, one where he goes through, starts at the Old Testament, and he's looking at Hebrew and Greek terms and 
responding to debates. Um, his name is Robert A.J. Gagnon or Gagnon. I'm not sure how you pronounce um, his, his name, but he's done a lot of work. Uh, he's not an evangelical. He's a mainline Protestant. He wrote this book in 2002. Um, it's called The Bible and Homosexual Practice, Texts and Hermeneutics. You know, it's 500 pages long. It's very technical. Um, if you're just looking to wade into this debate, I would not, I would not recommend this one. He's written shorter books, and um, they're, they're out there on Amazon. Um, but it's, it's almost it's interesting as a sort of historical document, too. This is from 2002. He's a mainline Protestant. Um, I think maybe he's, I think maybe he's a Methodist, um, and he's trying to kind of convince his his fellow mainline Protestant uh, Christians um, to stay faithful to Scripture in terms, especially in terms of homosexuality, and um, it's almost sort of I don't know quaint now because the most of the mainline church has just given up on this issue. They, they have flown by it, they have liberalized, they've accepted sort of the, the, the larger culture's understanding of sexuality, and um, it's not really even about scripture anymore. It's, the debate has moved beyond, you know, if scripture does not um, line up with sort of the cultural mandate of, of uh, contemporary progressive politics, then they, well, scripture's wrong. That's kind of their position, and he, this is sort of a last gasp attempt um, from, from the main line to, to kind of hold the line. But it's a, it's a very good book in terms of New Testament and Old Testament exegesis and, and responding to the, de the debates. Uh, the other one that I very much would recommend, especially because it's a beautiful book because it's less than 150 pages long, um, it's called What is Marriage? Man and Woman, a Defense. And these sort of represent the two poles I'm going to come at this issue uh, from. Uh, this one is biblical. This one is... Um, just uh, I hesitate to say philosophical because I don't want to put you off. It's not technical, but it is from a sort of broadly reasonable standpoint. They start with premises we can all agree on. You don't have to accept the authority of Scripture. You, uh, it's, it's more an argument for what marriage is, what are the goods it provides, um, and what are the consequences of redefining it, uh, in, especially in terms of um, public policy um, the government, um, what, what the state has to say about marriage. And the Sorry, the, uh, there are three authors. Um, the main author is Sharif Gurgis, S-H-E-R-I-F-G-I-R-G-I-S. Uh, the second one is Ryan T. Anderson, and the third is Robert P. George. They're all Catholics, um, but they don't make the argument from a Catholic standpoint. Although this is one of the, the these areas are one where we Catholics, or we Evangelicals and, and Catholics have a lot of common ground, and we can come together sort of in the culture wars, um, and we're, we find we're in the same trench with them in, in, in these culture war issues. Um, Ryan, Ryan Anderson especially has, has done a lot um, of, of work. He has another book on sort of uh, marriage and religious freedom. He has another book on the transgender debate. Um, he's very active on Twitter, and he is a model of hospitable, winsome dialogue. He gets trashed, you know, and he's always respectful. He always responds. Um, he, you know, he never loses his temper and, and calls people names. You know, he, 
he just argues with them really well, and he's a good model. And you can find him sometimes on Fox News or something. He'll be punditing on there. So, um, but he's a good he's a good guy, and he's kind of become the face public face of the traditional viewpoint. Okay, um, so I'm going to talk first about scripture, and then I'm going to talk about sort of lar- the larger what is marriage, uh, and. Um, a couple of reasons I want to talk about. I want to talk about what what's the biblical data in terms of, um, especially homosexuality. Um, and then, uh, you know, it, it the ship has sailed in the mainline Protestant Church, Presbyterian, uh, Methodists. They're still kind of wrang- they're still wrangling over it, but uh, Presbyterians, Episcopalians. Um, Lutheran, the major Lutheran denomination, uh, they, they've all accepted the validity of, of same-sex sexuality. Um, evangelicals are now fighting over it. They're, we're fighting the battle they were back in you know, 2002 in the late 90s. Um, and so, so we're confronted with a lot of scriptural uh, arguments for same-sex sexuality um, from, you know, progressive evangelicals or what, what have you. And uh, so it's sort of a fight that's happening from within. Um, so I want to address those arguments, the arguments they're, they're tending to make. Um, and this is also one of those kind of unique culture war issues where <clears throat> our opponents who are not believers like to quote scripture at us, uh, you know, as if they know it better than we do. And I, I want to make sure that's not the case. So I'm going to give you some arguments today um, to say, no, that's that's ridiculous. Um, so, and 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 then we'll go. We'll we'll kind of back off the scripture stuff and and look at um, marriage and uh, what it is and how to define it. Okay, you can see on your outline um, there. You know, if we're going to talk about places where scripture directly addresses homosexual practice, there are not very many. Um, I've there are a few more than I've listed on your outline, but uh, these are the ones that uh, are that directly address it, and they're the ones that get debated over. The others are too vague or too specific, uh, either one of those, um, to to have much purchase on either side in the debate. Um, so we'll we'll just dive in. Um, the fir- the first one is. Leviticus 18 and 20, uh, both of these places are, we're in the law, where God's laying down a lot of rules, um, and um, in two places he mentions uh, kind of same-sex practice. Uh, the first one, Levit- Leviticus 18:22, you shall not lie with a male as with a woman, it is an abomination. Leviticus 20:13, similar. If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Um, and this is in the in the context of other um, sort of sexual sins like bestiality and incense, uh, incense, <laughs> incest, um, where uh, the, the things are kind of being listed one after the other. Uh, adultery is in there too, of course. Um, so. One of the clarification that actually you can see in this, um, when the Bible addresses 
homosexuality, every time, it's a matter of practice, not orientation or identity. It's a matter of certain acts that people commit, which is very important in these debates. Uh, the, the Bible never talks about if you have fundamentally same-sex desires or if, if you feel like you're oriented that way, you know, if you're, if you're born that way. The Bible, the Bible has no interest in that, and the, the biblical writers didn't really have a category for that at all. There really wasn't a category for homosexual orientation until like the 19th century. So it's a very modern concept. Um, they only had specific things you did that were prohibited. So uh, the, the, the law is pretty straightforward. Um, it, it'll come into the argument later, so I'm not gonna spend much time exegeting it. And nobody, nobody argues, even in people who are advocating for homosexual practice, nobody argues that um, Leviticus is actually saying, yea, verily, you may lie with another man as with a man. You know, that's, that's not, nobody makes that argument. Um, I'm going to skip over Sodom and Gomorrah. It's sort of a, not, because it, it doesn't lay down any kind of laws or rules. It has an, in, an instance of um, men wanting to rape other men um, and that's part of the reason for their punishment, but it's sort of a specific thing. It's also very clearly they're wanting to sexually molest and abuse them, so uh, there's, there's, not a, there's not a lot of you, that you can draw from it kind of prescriptively. Um, and that's, you know, that's about it for the Old Testament. It's, it's not, there's not a lot there. Um, for the New Testament, the, the first and the main place where it's addressed most at length is Romans 1, uh, 24 through 27, where Paul's talking about the wrath of God being um, revealed to and poured out on all of mankind. Um, oops. Next slide. Okay, yeah. So let me just read it here, and then you, you can see some... Words are kind of bolded and underlined, and we'll, we'll, I'll explain why in a little bit. But here Paul says, Therefore God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural, natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another, men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. There's a lot there. Um, I'm going to kind of draw out a, a little bit of uh, interpretation for this, and we'll keep bumping up against it when we see you know, arguments uh, against uh, or arguments for homosexuality, the, the validity of it. Um, first thing I wanna point out is the, the words Paul uses for man and woman here. Um, the, the typical Greek word that he would use, uh, you know, gynakis is, uh, you can see, you know, like the word for gynecologist is in there. That's the typical Greek word for woman. Uh, and andres or anthropos would be the word for men that he would use, um, or anthropoi is the plural. Um, 
But he doesn't use, Paul doesn't use those words here. He uses um, thalei and arsonists, which are the words for actually females and males, male and female. And um, what, what, what I think Paul's doing, and there's other evidence in the passage for this as well that it would take too long for us to get into, but when God talks about creating man and woman in the image of God, male and female, he created them. Uh, in the Greek Old Testament that Paul would have been re- reading, that he would have read regularly, those are the words that you see arson and thelu. Those are the same words as male and female that Paul uses in Romans 1. So he's drawing on sort of the fund of Genesis 1, an image of God language. There, there's, and there's, there are other parallels too. It's not just this. But you can see that he's kind of... Um, when he says acts that are contrary to nature, um, nature as it's created by God, that Gentiles should be able to see, right, without the lens of special revelation. Um, they're accountable for these sort of natural, the, the natural sort of male-female complementarity in creation, okay? A um, couple other things that I want to show that where Paul is kind of drawing on the Jewish worldview that he was a part of. Um, there are two exchanges that it says the, the um, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator. And uh, the women exchanged natural relations for unnatural relations. Um, this kind of parallels love of God and love of neighbor. Um, you're exchanging the worship of God for idols. Your love of God has failed. As a consequence, if your love of God fails, you will cease to operate according to the categories that, are, that God has created in nature and that are evident to all people. Um, and therefore, you're not going to love your neighbor properly. So you can see that what Paul is saying here about idolatry and about... Uh, kind of same-sex passions and practice, that it, it, it is a, it's a breakdown of the categories that God created in the world. There's a lot we could say about this passage, but um, I'll say one more thing. When he says contrary to nature, acts which are contrary to nature... Um, this was at any time, so if you, you know, if you look back, and this is something that um, Robert Gag- Gagnon talks about, um, if you look back at all the intertestamental literature, Jewish literature that was being written, if anybody was talking about sexuality or homosexuality, um, they would use this phrase, contrary to nature or, or against nature. And um, it's sort of standard language for homosexual practice. Um, And it always is sort of referring to the breakdown of the things we see in nature that work the way God intended for them to work. Namely, both the anatomical and the procreative complementarity of male and female in creation. So anatomical, 
you know, we see how things work. We see that, uh, you know, to get nitty gritty, we see that, you know, slot A, you know, goes into, or, you know, <laughs> you, you get it, right? Um, this is the PG-13 stuff I worry, warned you about. Um, you know, this, uh, this, this is a natural thing to think about males and females. Also, when that happens, when that act is committed, babies are born, and the, 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 the species uh, is propagated. Um, so th these, these, the way nature works has certain outcomes, and we see that at work. So when we're acting contrary to nature, we are failing to operate according to those categories that have been set up and that are freely available to and um, perceived by all of humanity. Okay? So that, um, morning. Any, any questions about Romans 1? I'm going to move on to a couple more passages. Procreative. It just means that sex results in children, mostly, usually. Other things don't result in children, at least. <laughs> right? Okay. Um, there are two other places that mention homosexuality in the New Testament. And again, we're talking about homosexual acts. Uh, the first one is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Paul is using what scholars like to call a vice list, uh, a, a list of vices to kind of talk about what, what is not characteristic of the people of God's kingdom. So he says, excuse me, or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. So if, if this is one of those interesting places where if you, if you look at different... Um, translations of scripture, that phrase, men who practice homosexuality, you'll get vastly different uh, translations of, of that. And Paul's using two words. Uh, that phrase, men who practice homosexuality, um, it mentions two, two people, actually. Uh, the first one is called Malakoi, which most loosely and broadly translates as effeminate. Um, and the other one is arsenikoitai. Uh, and that's men who literally translates as men who take others to bed. And this is, the, these are words where if you read, you know, depending on who you read, you'll get diff vastly different uh, interpretations of what they mean. So some people say, Paul is being bigoted here and saying that any man who takes on effeminate characteristics uh, or acts, you know, 
sort of in the way that we stereotypically think of gay people acting, like the limp-wristed, sort of effeminate male, um, that that's what Paul is doing, and he's being really harsh, and therefore, therefore, you know, we can not listen to him here. Uh, probably that's not true, <laughs> because um, later in, uh, or elsewhere in First Corinthians, he will talk about uh, men and women in worship, you know, men who have long hair shouldn't have long hair, men, women who should have long hair, it's their, their hair is their glory. Um, these sort of masculine and feminine characteristics, he gives them pastoral advice about them, that and gives them uh, strong uh, um, injunctions to follow, but he doesn't actually exclude anybody from the kingdom of God. So this is pro he's probably not talking you know, on that basis. So he's probably not talking here about just acting effeminately. Uh, and given the fact that it's paired with this other word, arsenikoitai, um, he's actually probably talking about passive um, sexual partners in a male-male in a sexual relationship, um, the one who takes kind of the female role um, and, and the arsenikoitai is somebody who plays the active role. So he's the, if you do either of these things, and there's a lot of evidence um, that um, from other uses of, of the, the first word that um, what's going on is a, a lot of men would actually, you know, play up they're sort of a, a sort of femininity in order to attract other male sexual partners. So, not only were they, you know, active pa acting passively and sometimes in a prostitute prostitutional kind of setting, but they were um, kind of playing up the fact that they were they they were playing the role of the woman in in these sex acts. Um, the the second word arsenikoitai actually. They, scholars think Paul made this word up. Um, th this is the first instance. It's used a lot after it, but there's nothing before. Um, and uh, he used this word for his specific purposes. Um, but he uses them in sort of a, uh, if, if, you know, if you're either playing this role or you're playing this role, it's, it's out of bounds for the kingdom of God. Uh, it's an abomination. You know, he's, he's drawing on the Levitical uh, understanding of men lying with other males. And then in 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 10, he, he uses that word again. Um, now we know that the law is good if one uses it lawfully. And you can see here, again, he's drawing on the law. He's drawing on the Levitical Deuteronomic law from the Old Testament. So, you know, one of the arguments that you'll hear again and again is, well, we don't need to obey Old Testament law because it's the Old Testament, right? You know, it was overturned by Jesus Christ and Christianity, and Christians are not uh, subject to it, you know, except for the parts that they explicitly upheld in the New Testament. And this is one of those places. So, um, so we know for the, law, for the law is good if one uses it lawfully, understanding this, that the law is not laid down for the just, but for the lawless and disobedient, for the ungodly and sinners, for the unholy and profane, for those who strike their fathers and mothers, for murderers, the sexually immoral, for men who practice 
homosexuality. And there's our word again, our senekoitas. Enslavers, liars, perjurers, and whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel of the glory of the blessed God with which I have been entrusted. Another argument that gets put forward um, is that because this is right before enslavers, which is um, has to do with kidnapping, um, either for um, kind of slave prostitution or for uh, slave trafficking, um, that Paul is talking about uh, people who are uh, people, people who engage in the practice of, you know, sex trafficking for the purposes of homosexual practice. And um, that's, that's actually also unlikely here, given that Paul has explicitly talked about the law. He's just mentioned um, sexual immorality. And then he talks about men, men who practice homosexuality in this translation. Um, these... Uh, commandments actually, or these vices actually parallel the second half of, of the Decalogue, um, committing adultery, sexual immorality, and homosexuality are in that, are grouped together. Um, you shall not steal is, is in with enslavers and kidnappers, and there's good evidence for that in other, the rabbinical usages of these words, um, thou shalt not lie. Um, the, the, those things parallel the, the commandments, and um, the homosexuality falls in with the um, you shall not commit adultery commandment and not the lie commandment. So, um, but there you have it. And, you know, that's those are all the mentions. Those are all the explicit mentions of homosexual practice in in the New Testament. Not much, right? Comparatively. Okay. Uh, shifting gears a little bit, now I'm going to address several arguments um, f that people use, scholars mostly use, um, to try to undermine these texts or to try to make an argument for it. At the very least, they're not addressing what we currently know as homosexuality. Any questions? Sorry, it's, it's all a little technical, but um, hopefully it'll become a little more applicable now. So one of the, one of the things that, <laughs> that is that we are told as Christians very often is that Jesus taught forgiveness and love and acceptance, and not judgment. Uh, even if Paul did, you know, often Paul and Jesus are set against each other, and Jesus, you know, is Jesus, so he trumps Paul, uh, and trumps us when we're being bigoted or judgmental. Um, and along these lines, they will they will say, and Jesus never once mentioned homosexuality. It was not one of his priorities. If it was one of his priorities, he would have told us all about it, right? That's, that's the argument. Well, for one, you know, that, does not, that, 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 that doesn't address Jesus' historical context. He was a first century Jew living in Israel, and I don't think there was a lot of 
I don't think there were a lot of practicing homosexuals going around talking about it. Um, it was, you know, he's responding to this, the situations of his day. What's more, um, even if Jesus did teach forgiveness and love and acceptance, which he did, and we need to remember, um, when it came to matters of the law, especially with sexual matters, Jesus actually sort of upped the ante. He didn't lower it. He ate with prostitutes and tax collectors, but he did not hold them to any kind of different standard than the law set out for them. He actually held, them to, held, held his followers to a higher standard. Uh, the, the first entrance, uh, instance is divorce. Um, he criticizes Moses himself for allowing divorce because of their hard hearts and um, kind of makes this, the practice more strict. Uh, also with adultery and lust, he says, if you look at a, at a woman in your heart and lust after her, you have committed adultery with her. That is a stricter standard than the law has set. So even if you want to say Jesus was accepting and loving, that's not at the expense of the, 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 the ethical teaching of the Old Testament law. It actually is an invitation into a deeper kind of heart attitude toward the law that internalizes it and um, gives it a, an actually a, a stricter cast. And also, like I said, Jesus uh, seeking out of the, of the sick and the lost, um, it doesn't signal an endorsement. It signals a rescue. He's going out to them to draw them into his circle for forgiveness and repentance, right? So it, it, the fact that he never talked about it and that he drew in sinners to himself was so that he might bring them to a greater level of holiness and repentance and and. Uh, identification with with his lifestyle. Uh, another thing you can uh, when the, if this topic you know kind of comes up in conversation, I hope I hope these are give you sort of like talking points in these in these if, when you're having these debates. Um, um, and they say you know Jesus Jesus hung out with he was known for hang, hanging out with the sexually immoral and prostitutes and we should we should be too and we should we should be seeking these people out like Jesus did to draw them into uh, a life of forgiveness um, but you know you can ask them Jesus hung out with tax collectors who were economically exploiting and oppressing the poor does that does that mean that he didn't he didn't want them to stop exploiting the poor you know there's a parallel there and I, you know that's a priority of the of uh, people on the left who like to make these arguments, um, just because he hung out with them does not mean you know he wanted Zacchaeus to stop stealing from from people, from the poor especially. He wanted them to uh, convert. So in some, he wanted he wa he wanted their repentance. Not it, 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 he was not endorsing their lifestyle. Okay, that's a, that's a kind of a general one, and, and that's the sort of polemical one, you know, pitting 
Jesus against biblical teaching. We'll get into some more Pauline ones now. So has anybody heard of uh, Matthew Vines? He wrote a book a couple of years ago, I think it was published in 2012, called God and the Gay Christian. He's actually a Wichita native. Uh, He grew up in Wichita at an evangelical church, um, is now gay, and is now sort of actively making the case in in, in a popular mode for um, homosexual practice and and identity as a Christian. and I, I read a long kind of talk of his as I was preparing for this, and he just, he, he trots out each one of these arguments that, that I've already used and that I will be talking about. So th- these are the arguments that, that arguments that are being made, both at a scholarly level, but also at a popular level. And here's, here's one of the, the biggest ones you'll hear, and probably the one with the most truth to it, um, which is what gives it its sort of purchase, I think. And that's that Paul wasn't talking about loving, monogamous, uh, homosexual relationships. He was talking about uh, exploitative and pederastic forms of homosexuality. Pederastic is uh, a a man who is sexually involved with a a boy. and that, that's what he's condemning. And he, the, the sort of economic, exploitative cast of those words that he used in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 uh, is, tends to be where that comes from. Here, here's a scholar uh, named David Bartlett. He says, The modern concept of homosexuality should by no means be read into Paul's text, nor can we assume that Paul's words in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, 6, 9 Um, condemn all homosexual relations in all times and places and ways. Regardless of the kind of sexuality meant in 1 Corinthians 6.9 and 1 Timothy 1.10, in the current context, they are examples of the exploitation of persons. What Paul primarily opposes is the wrong that people do to others. Okay? So if you take... I'll mention several arguments that sort of, I think, poke holes in this this theory. One, if you take the parallel instances in these vice lists, especially the sexual ones, um, and in 1 Corinthians 6, Paul has just spent a whole chapter talking about a serious case of incest, right? Um, A a gross sexual sin. but his argument in those in, in instances of incest or adultery in the law when it mentions bestiality, these don't, uh, these are not cases where, or he, he doesn't draw out the um, exploitative or oppressive practices in, in these situations. And Paul doesn't differentiate with his words. So um, to, to single out this actual, this, own, this one word and this one instance for, uh, to say, well, it's, it's, it's not actually about the act itself, it's about the way it happened or the motivations for it happening. Um, 
another uh, another instance would be if, if he's talking about especially about pederasty he had a better word for it and that was the word pederastus which is where we get the word pederasty you know that word existed in greek he could have used it and he didn't um also when you know that that quote we read, he mentioned 1 Corinthians 6, 9 in terms of homosexual practice. He mentioned 1 Timothy 1, 10. He didn't mention Romans 1 because Romans 1 does not talk about it in those terms. And you got to interpret Paul according to Paul, right? Not according to what you'd like Paul to be. Also, sorry, one of the arguments that's made is... Uh, that word malakoi, the the passive sexual partner in a in a same sex relationship or same sex um, intercourse, is uh, often often used you know to mean effeminate or uh, womanly, um, and the argument is made that it is, uh, you know, again. It's exploitative. They're being used by somebody who's more powerful as in, in an unequal sort of power structure. Um, but why would, if that's the case, why would Paul be condemning them if they're, if, you know, if they're not at fault here, if they're unwillingly engaging in these things? He singles them out. Um, you know, the, the, the more likely cases he's talking about two willing partners engaged in this act. Um, also, the uh, there are examples of non-exploitative same-sex love all throughout ancient Greco-Roman literature. And what they're, wh what they're saying is Paul didn't know about loving monogamous relationships, which is just simply not true. Paul was a Greek Hellenized Jew. He would have read Plato and Aristotle. These things show up all over the place in Plato's Symposium. Yeah? I, I have read that in the Roman culture, um, homosexuality was not prohibited, but it was prohibited on pain of death for a Roman citizen to take the passive role. Mm -hmm. I mean, so Especially with another... Yes. And yes. And it, it was, it was uh, the law was against two Roman men, Roman citizen, grown men. There was not a law against pederasty. Right. That was actually considered the good form of homosexuality in, in ancient Rome because uh, it actually, because a boy was, a boy is effeminate still. He's not, uh, you're, you're, uh, you're not blurring the kind of gender distinction or overturning some kind of power structure uh, in ancient Rome when you're doing that. The, the boy is already a boy. He's already effeminate. He's already, he already doesn't have any power. You're doing, according to Rome, uh, Roman, uh, the Roman understanding, you're doing what is according to nature in that case. And it's, you know, that's, that's, so to say that Paul is only opposing these things and not these loving that was the thing that was bad, actually, like Paul points out. So thank you. Paul Friesen points out, as well as Paul of Tarsus. So good job. 
Um, and again, it's always helpful to keep in mind that always what's, what's at the base of these arguments is Paul didn't know anything about orientation. He didn't know anything about, I was born this way, I have these desires that can't be fulfilled. Um, but that's actually, that can work both ways because um, what Paul talks about is the act. Not, not your motivation for it, right? Um, if there's, um, if, it's, if it's about companionship and love and not about the sex act, then there's a category for that in, ancient, in the ancient world and in our, Rome, in our world, and that's called friendship. Companionship, love, self-sacrifice, uh, community, that's friendship. The sex act is what makes it wrong, according to the Bible. So your motivation for it is actually less important. Okay, as we go along, these will um, overlap a little bit, but uh, the, the next one is Paul and other biblical authors knew nothing about homosexual orientation. And specifically, often you'll hear that they thought about um, homosexual lusts as sort of um, oversexed heterosexual lusts on overdrive. Like if, if, you, didn't, if you didn't have enough outlet for your, your heter heterosexual passions, then you would sort of, as Paul says, become inflamed with passion for those of your own sex. And that's, that's what he's saying. That's what scholars will say um, Paul is addressing. Um, or that he was saying, he's condemning people who intentionally chose homosexuality as a willful um, denial of what God has has said and and deemed according to nature. Um, so it's not people who are born this way. It's not people who have this kind of innate orientation, or who have maybe a gay gene or something. Uh, whatever argument gets gets used for that. Um, and again, I said it's in Plato and it's in Aristotle. It's in other um, ancient authors that they actually did. They actually did know of this. They kn they knew of people who had same sex sex sexual orientations. Um, it wasn't unheard of. Um, also, if 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 those desires are innate, and that makes them okay. Why do, why do those innate desires get a pass in terms of being sinful uh, as opposed to other innate desires that sometimes even have a genetic component to them like alcoholism or uh, criminal or violent behavior, which, can, which obviously does pass on in terms of um, father to son. You know, it, it, it seems to have a sort of innate... Uh, source in us that's that's deep within us well those things are sinful too why is this one singled out as somehow being okay also to talk about innate desires that are um that are part of us if if, if the only people who are sinful are people who knew god and willfully chose to to 
turn away from him. Um, that completely overturns Paul's larger point in Romans 1 and 2 and 3, um, which is in Romans 1, he's talking about Gentiles. You Gentiles, you know what's according to nature. You know how it works, and you've overturned it. Romans 2, oh, but you, the Jew, you, are con- you condemn these things, but you do the same thing, right? Um, so he's kind of widening the net. So, so he's addressing Gentiles in Romans 1. He widens it in Romans 2 to Jews and Gentiles. Okay, you're all, in Romans 3, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's nobody who's without excuse. This is Paul's argument. It's, it's, it's not, Gentiles, you are sinful because um, you've turned away from the, revi- the, the naturally revealed law of God at work in nature. Jews, you condemn them for that, but you're sinful too. So that, and then they'll say, you'll often hear the argument, because Paul says, Paul condemns the Jew who it thinks he's superior when he's not, then he was just using that as a sort of example in, in Romans 1 that uh, he didn't actually think it was wrong. <laughs> but uh, no, what he's doing is widening the net, catching all of humanity in the, in the web of sin. Uh, so um, the last thing I'll say about this is uh, sort of about orientation or identity, um, is that w- when, um, when this book was being written, there was still a lot of debate about, you know, is there a gay gene, or is it, d- what, if it's, what if it has a sort of genetic component to it? Um, there, a, a, a couple of things about this. The, the science has proved inconclusive. There was actually a study released just, just a couple of weeks ago, I think, that sort of they did a long kind of study on this and it was it was inconclusive. Um, on top of that, proponents have actually backed off of this argument of the, the genetic gay gene argument and they've they've moved into the identity. You know, uh, th- this is my identity. This, these these desires, I can't do anything about them. Um, in the words of Lady Gaga, I was I was born this way, right? Um, which has the advantage of being unassailable by scientific data, right? Um, there's a lot more going on in those in, in, the, in the talk about identity, but it does have that uh, it does have that effect. You know, you can't you can't argue against somebody's feelings; they're subjective by definition. So to argue, you know, no, you don't have that feeling. Well, it's a failed argument already. You can't say they don't have that feeling. You can't say that they do. They might just be telling you whatever. Um, you don't get to say, well, the science demonstrates that your identity is, well, that doesn't work. Um, so, so the, the, the and, and I think scientists just don't want to touch it. It's, it's, a, it's a hot topic, uh, so it doesn't get studied as much as it could. Yeah, I'm, I know in the past they've really pushed the genetic possibility, and I'm, I'm interested to see as they disavow that, actually. I had seen one argument where they were sort of admitting, this is a couple of years ago, if there is a genetic component that is a primary driver, then we who believe, we being they, we who believe in a Darwinian evolutionary worldview are 
starting to conclude that this subset of our species is being deselected out of the gene pool. And they didn't like that possibility. Mm -hmm. I'm not even proposing that, but they realized that their genetic argument was saying these people should not reproduce. It's by definition non-procreative. Which was the primary, they tell me, purpose for sex in most species. Mm. Tell me more. And <laughs> it's on the internet. And, <laughs> and they didn't like the conclusion that they were building through this genetic possibility. So mm -hmm. That's why we're hearing less and less and less about it. Yeah. 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 Well, for those following along at home, um, David was just saying that, you know, according to a Darwinian kind of understanding of natural selection, then homosexuality is a sort of maladaptive practice. Um, so that might be why they've backed off of those arguments as well. Um, I've, I've, I've got a couple of other arguments that people tend to... Um, use here letters, I think, D and E on your outlines. I would actually like to, I've got 15 minutes, right? I've got it out here at 10.15. I would like to skip over those, um, both so that I can get to the next uh, part of the outline and so that um, we have a little time for questions and answers or discussion at the end if, we, if there is, if, if I don't talk until the very last second. Um, so I'm going to skip ahead to point Roman numeral three, unless anybody has any burning questions about what they see in, in those two. Okay. So what I want to talk about in point three is this is now I'm kind of skip, uh, not skipping, but um, shifting over to the, the sort of marriage, larger marriage picture. Um, which to me has a lot of pull, you know, just seems like it, it catches me somewhere deep inside. Um, so the, 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 I want to talk about two views of marriage and everything is just, is coming straight from this. Um, and sort of the larger conversation these authors are having. Um, they outline two, two views of marriage. One they call conjugal. The other they call revisionist. Uh, I'll get into their definition of conjugal marriage. Uh, the first one is, the, fir the first thing they say about con conjugal marriage it's called conjugal for a reason. It, it has, this is the place where sex happens um, and where it's consummated. The marriage bed is the consummation of our sexuality. But the first is comprehensive. It's a union of both body and mind in love, and it's, it's consummated in sexual intercourse. So you, you agree to be in it. Um, you love the other person, uh, and your body is involved in that in a way it's not involved in any other relationship. Um, the second is, it's procreative. Again, we're seeing this word again, it comes up a lot. 
because the sexual act is a central part of marriage, um, it is, in the words of the authors, apt for and deepened by procreation. So marriage is uh, the natural place where procreation happens. Now, one, pla- one thing I don't want you to get tripped up on here is if marriage is for procreation, what about you know families who can't have kids or who are too old? Does that mean they're not married? No, it doesn't. Um, what they're saying is uh, sex is the thing that gives us children. And if you engage in sex, you will tend to have children. If you engage in sex that by definition does not result in children, that cannot, then that's a different thing we're talking about. That's a different kind of act, a different species of act, right? Um, so don't hear me saying that if you, you know, if you haven't had kids or you can't have kids, that that somehow puts you at a different status. The fact is, you're married, you're doing the things that would result in kids under normal circumstances. Um, that, that's what procreative means. It tends to procreation, it's apt for that. So they're not trying to create hierarchies and tiers of marriage status. But it is where, it is the one place where procreation legitimately happens. Third one is it's domestic and familial because procreation tends to occur It is an institution fit for domestic and family life. So marriage is where domestic life happens. It's where family life happens. This means it's all-encompassing. Because marriage brings children into being and results in families, it should be permanent and exclusive. Okay? It should be permanent because you want kids to have the stability that comes from a a, a stable, functioning household. A mom and a dad who love each other where they can learn how to live in the world successfully. Uh, And last, it's for the common good. It's not just for families. Because it tends to provide for children's welfare um, the state, i.e. the government, should actually support it and recognize it. Um, that is, the state doesn't create it. The state doesn't um, tell us how it should happen, but it should take an interest in it because families are the building blocks of society. If you, had, if you don't have functioning families, you don't have a functioning society. Um, and if you try to pull that, pull the family apart and pull marriage apart, you're pulling all marriage, family, and sexuality apart, and you're pulling society apart. So the government has an interest in making sure that the families thrive. That's why there are things like tax credits. There are incentives for families to, uh, to function as families and for marriage to be the institution that, uh, that ratifies you know, sort of the family as, as an existing sort of unit within society, okay? So that's conjugal marriage. Here's revisionist marriage. This is the Disney princess marriage. It's a romantic partnership primarily. And don't hear me saying again that 
romance is not involved in conjugal marriage, but uh, it is primarily r romantic. It is an emotional bond enhanced by sexual activity. And here we have a mar marriage in this sense is governed by the intensity of your emotion, right? Which we all know is strong when marriage is new and does not last. And sexual activity is sort of like a wahoo kind of extra you get. Um, I was, that's what I did. Commitment is tied to your intensity of uh, the intensity of your emotion. So when emotion wanes and the intensity of it mm, powers down after, you know, six months for some people, or a, or a year, or ten years, twenty years, well, then em, then marriage is powering down as well. Um, it doesn't point beyond itself. It's about the if it's it's about you and your self fulfillment, and it's about your partner's self-fulfillment, and you're fulfilling yourselves together. Uh, it doesn't point to children. It doesn't point to society. It kind of points to your needs and what, what, what you want. Again, uh, fidelity in marriage is subject to your desires. So if you desire something else outside of your marriage, then... By all means, you got to be true to yourself. Seek it. Yeah. Can I just put in a plug here for some of that stuff? It is dealt with in a really appealing way in Tim Keller's book. Yes, and that's actually I had I had that down somewhere. I wanted to say the meaning of marriage by Tim Keller. Tim and um, Catherine, is that her? Kathy Keller. Um, that's an excellent book for not. I mean. It defends marriage by showing what marriage is. Kind of what I'm trying to do right now. Um, you know, in, so in, in a lot of apologetic debates, the best defense is a good offense. Uh, so uh, you, you got to know what a thing is, and you got to be it and embody it and, and know it. Uh, it's the positive good that it provides. So. Um, A couple of things about the revisionist uh, understanding of marriage. That uh, how many of us in here, and you don't have to raise your hand, um, would adhere to all the biblical teaching that I just went through, but then you read the revisionist view of marriage and you see yourself in it? I mean, guilty. I, I, when I read that, I think, oh, man. I really, like, it is, I do make it about my own self-fulfillment. Um, I, think, I, I think these sort of two competing visions are where things get messy for us, and where we're a lot more implicated, you know. We'll, we'll sign on the line for, yea, verily, I believe in a biblical view of marriage and it's not, uh, and, and sexuality, but when it comes to the goods of marriage and what it, what it provides and what it does, then I think we tend to be a little more modern than we, uh, and secular than we think we are. Um, at least I know I am. Maybe I shouldn't speak for you all. Uh, but I, yeah, I, I, I sort of, I read it the first time and I kind of got flushed in the face. Oh man, I'm on the wrong side of this. So um, another thing about this description is there's nothing particularly homosexual about revisionist view of marriage, you know. 
that no-fault divorce falls under this revisionist view. Uh, the thing is that according to this definition, there's no reason you shouldn't include same-sex marriage uh, in it. For conjugal marriage, it has to be a man and a woman, right? For revisionist marriage, well, it can be a man and a woman, a man and a man, a woman and a woman, a man and a woman and a man, a man and a man and a man, you know, you just man and a dog, a man and a house, a man and a country, you know, and these things happen. People, I'm not saying they're mainstream, but people are trying to make these arguments. So we're not, we're not expanding the definition of marriage when we talk about validating same-sex unions, as the Supreme Court did four years ago. We're, d we're redefining marriage. It's a different thing that we are now engaged in in our country. This book was written in 2012 when the marriage debates were still happening. They're over now in a lot of ways, at least in terms of law. So a lot of the things they say, this would, this will, this might, it's all, it's no longer hypothetical anymore. Is anybody else stunned like I was that this whole thing seemed to just land on us overnight? There was no discussion, there was no debate, there was no yeah. voting. We just we woke up one day and they said, hey, this just got handed to you. Yeah, and I think that's because the sort of the revisionist vision of marriage was percolating in our country for so long that we just didn't have when it all of a sudden when it landed on us, oh, well, yeah, it seems perfectly natural to expand the definition of revisionist, the, the revisionist definition. And, and yeah, that sort of goes into your, your next point. 3D, or yeah, 3D, are they expanding or refining it? And, and another thing I've never heard anyone on the news describe is that marriage isn't an invention of the government or society. Mm -hmm. It is a sacrament one of the five or six sacraments of the Christian church mm -hmm. or Jewish or Islam, they all three teach that God invented marriage as a sacrament. Now they've got different manifestations, but I think what business does the government have coming in and changing a church sacrament? There were wars fought over that not too long ago. Um, baptism of children resulted in the 30 years of war in Europe. Uh, and, and I, I just I, this this really stunned me. The government thought they could change the church sacrament without even telling us it was a church sacrament, and most of us don't know it's a church sacrament. Yeah, yeah. And there's been some debate about should should churches get out of the, the civil marriage business now that you know the 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 piece of paper the minister gets says spouse A and spouse B and not husband and wife. Are we engaging in something that has fundamentally redefined it rather than, you know, tweaked it? So yeah, that's what that's what we're wrestling with now. Um, we're about out of time. Uh, I I wanted to, <laughs> and letter C following the rabbit down the hole. You know, the the debate has. As soon as Obergefell happened in 2015 and the Supreme Court ruled that same-sex marriage was the law of the land, it immediately changed the tra transgender rights. We're, we're in the middle of that now. Um, polyamory is sort of the next wave that, that in the agenda. And uh, if you 
polyamory is, you know, open marriage or like, you know, um, willing to have multiple sexual partners in a willing arrangement. Um, this is this has become a new thing. And if you don't think it's a new thing, I saw this the other day and was kind of appalled by it. In the New York Times, I'm going to give you some headlines, and they're not from the last 20 years, they're not from the last 10 years, it's from about the last two and a half years. I'll read you some headlines. First one. First, try the pastrami, then the polyamory. Woohoo! Next. Polyamory works for them. And you got the dates on here. Next, when a boyfriend joins the marriage. Next, talking to my fiance about my new girlfriend. How to make a relationship last? Make it open, Christopher Isherwood said. Happily ever open. How to propose an open relationship. Is an open marriage a happier marriage? Just asking questions. This, this stuff can't be new. It's just newly accepted. Because people have been doing that for years. It, it's a campaign right. of normalization. Right. This is... This is not Cosmopolitan magazine, you know. This is not National Enquirer. This is the national paper of record, and they are trying to make something happen. It seems pretty obvious. Those two, the two on there that are from 2017, they're late 2017. This has become an agenda. Okay, last thing I want to say, and I know we're over time a little bit, but... These uh, the last three, last six uh, goods that marriage provides: real marital fulfillment. Um, revisionist marriage is about emotional self fulfillment and co cohabitation, not family life. Spousal well being. Um, marriage civilizes and domesticates the the male. Beauty and the Beast actually is a good picture of this. You know, he's a beast. He's civilized by the woman uh, who domesticates him. That's a good little allegory, I think. Um, Martin Luther said marriage is a school for holiness uh, I, because, you know, your, your spouse tends to grind down your rough edges. I know that's true in my case. Um, because it, it, it pulls you toward virtues like being loyal and true to, to people, and being good to family. All of the data, sociological data, says that children with a biological mother and a biological father are the best arrangement for any kid. Ask anybody who's in the foster system. The laws are geared to keep kids with their parents. Even when foster parents dearly would like to keep their kids and adopt them, the court is always going to push to have the kids with their biological parents because the data says it's better. It just is. The, having a mom and a dad in a home is always better, so marriage is good for children. It's also good for friendship. Real marriage is good for friendship because revisionist marriage erodes the category of friendship. It says, well, marriage is just a really intense form of friendship, and you get to have sex too. That's 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 the view of revisionist marriage. Um, 
Yeah, exactly. That's that's what it is. But but real true conjugal marriage is uh, a different category. It's something where the family is brought together. Uh, religious liberty. Um, churches are going to be made to conform to the new orthodoxy. Uh, Beto O'Rourke, and you may have seen this just a week or two ago. Somebody asked him in a town hall um, meeting, "Would you, if you were president, would you take away the 501c3 tax exemption for nonprofits and churches, religious nonprofits and churches?" And he said, "Yes." And everybody clapped. Something's changed. I mean, O'Rourke's tanking in the polls, so um, he's not going to be president. But something has shifted where that gets an applause, right? Also, uh, as, as David was saying, true marriage is, uh, conjugal marriage is something that's recognized by the government and is supported by the government. It's not invented by it. The government invented something when they changed the definition of marriage, and now they're going to be invested in regulating it and making it, uh, uh, it it'll just be increasingly interventionist in terms of how they want to maintain it because they've defined and they've created it. Now they've got to, they've got to do something about it. So, sorry, I'm way over. I wanted to get through everything. That's also my tendency. But um, you're free to go, but fr feel free to ask, come up and ask questions or anything if you want to discuss more. So thank you.